Welcome to the Data Diaries podcast and this special series on leading through the COVID-19 crisis for visitor attractions executives with your host, Angie Judge, Chief Executive of Dexhibit, Big Data Analytics for Visitor Attractions. Hello and welcome to our listeners wherever you're joining us from. Today I am here with the inspirational Jules Polonetsky, CEO for the Future Privacy Forum, whose mission with his team is to protect all of us out in the world in terms of our personal data, which I imagine is somewhat of a moving target at the moment. Welcome, Jules. Great to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Whereabouts are you joining us from today and and what's life like there for you? I personally live in Potomac, Maryland. Our offices are in D.C., um, Tel Aviv, Brussels, Seattle, and Detroit. Um, Potomac is uh, fine. It's the suburbs, and I'm home with my two teenagers and spouse, so I won't complain. I've been on the phone or Zoom all day with people with little kids who are, you know, juggling or um, single you know, uh, staff or friends who are in apartments and are isolated. So I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty uh, lucky and, and privileged. But I think, like like everyone, um, trying to figure out what we can do to move forward. And it seems that data and tracking and privacy and apps and and knowing who's uh, affected and uh, all of those challenges are are going to play a huge role in moving forward. So it's. It's it's a little um, unnerving because a lot of the things we we all obviously talk about and debate when it comes to privacy, um, many of us who maybe didn't ever have to make a real decision, um, you know, beyond um, do I retarget people to our website or uh, you know um, how do I deal with this information in my you know member database are, are suddenly going to be grappling with questions like do we run remote thermal uh, thermometers to you know detect body heat or do we ask employees to fill out surveys about their you know symptoms and and many i think institutions uh, and even the biggest corporations are are not um you know are not ready to to deal with that and and uh, are, are a trying to find out what the legal parameters are and then b what's actually the right thing given their relationships with their employees or with their public mm. it is thrown us all into this very bizarre privacy situation. I want to talk generally today about privacy and public health and then dive into what it means for visitor attractions or public spaces and their visitors. To start off with, this crisis has really pitted privacy and liberty against public health priorities. Who wins when that happens? What is the cost to privacy? Is is it justified? Yeah, so I'd like to argue that it doesn't. Let me uh, walk through why I come to it. like that, and then whether this broader thinking um, makes a practical difference, and, and I think it does. So, the leading philosopher of privacy today is a fabulous um, academic, um, an ethicist, a philosopher named Helen Nissenbaum. And Helen's work, she's at um, Cornell Tech now, was at NYU for many years. Um, her, her most famous work um, that many scholars have built on is a, a book called Privacy and Context. And this very simple idea that she presents is that privacy is about context. Now, here's what that means. If I'm naked in the street, whether it's Potomac or London or, or you know, downtown DC, um, I'm exposed. I, I've given up some privacy. Uh, I'm, I'm clearly um, lacking privacy. 
if I'm um, naked in my doctor's office getting an exam, uh, well, that's a very different thing, right? I, I may or may not be a little self-conscious, but you know, I, that's expected, that's appropriate. Um, if I'm naked with a loved one, uh, you don't even think about privacy. It's like you're very happy that you're naked with your with your loved one. You're not even like, wait, what about my privacy, <laughs> right? Um, each context really frames the same experience very differently because you have a certain set of expectations. Now, that doesn't mean that anything goes in each of those um, experiences, right? Your your loved one uh, could could share a picture inappropriately, right? That that's wrong. And that violates that context. Uh, someone could peek into the doctor's office, right? The door could be open uh, into the, you know, anteroom, right? I could be outside and naked, but it could be a nude beach, and I don't care, right? Or I'm streaking, or protesting, or whatever, right? Context: What I expect is going to happen with my information frames whether or not there is a privacy expectation around that information. Now let's bring that to our current situation. Um, if I'm um, contagious, if I'm you know, infected, forget about pandemic today. If I have a, a sexually transmitted disease, if I have um, an illness and I have been intimate with people, I've, I've contacted people, I don't have a privacy interest that lets me say, it ain't your business that you may have just gotten sick for me, right? And that's not new. Um, contact tracing, hmm. these sorts of issues. Um, if you have a serious infectious disease and you have been in contact with somebody, it is not protecting your privacy to say, wait a second, I was intimate with you. I have a transmitted disease. No, I'm obligated to share that information. There is no privacy expectation. If I fall on the ground and, and you have to rip over my shirt to give me, you know, CPR, there is no issue. Well, wait a second, you know, privacy, I'm trying to save your life. Uh, that That is not the expectation. So privacy shrinks and expands based on the rights and freedoms that are at issue. And, you know, the Europeans get this right in a way that in the U.S. it can be a little harder to understand. The, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, the big European-wide um, comprehensive privacy law doesn't say the word privacy in any of the hundreds of pages of detail. It's a data protection law intended to balance the rights and freedoms of the individual. And that means rights of free speech and immigration and um, all of the restrictions um, and freedoms that are protected when you treat data responsibly. And it has clear areas where you can use information because there's an emergency, because there's public health. There's flexibility when I need to use the data for important public interest research. Now, here's where it becomes a privacy problem. Am I doing something beyond what is proportionate, necessary, minimal, and tailored to that need. So it is a huge privacy invasion, right? If information about my health um, or my location, which may not be necessary, um, is collected beyond what's needed, or if it's used beyond what's needed, are the immigration authorities gonna get it? Is, um, is my location necessary, right? Proximity, 
I get. I need to know that I was in close touch with somebody who might have infected me. But do I need to know every place you have specifically been? I don't. So I can convey. So I, I want to help sort of say that we are at risk of, quote unquote, losing privacy if, because of the crisis, we share information and it is shared for any purpose in ways that are beyond needed. If we share what is morally and ethically appropriate, right? Information I need to know because I'm risking others or I'm at risk, you know, of, of a fatal, you know, illness, that is not a privacy invasion. That is a an appropriate balance, but only if it's limited and proportionate and structured. It becomes a privacy invasion when it gets shared beyond what we really need to do what's minimal to protect our rights. So I hope that you know, I hope that nuance, which which can be very nuanced and complicated, um, helps. Um, but for folks like me who are working with um, the chief privacy officers of companies that are trying to create mobile apps, um, public health authorities, um, employers, government agencies, right? And they're saying, what should I do? What must I do? Our question isn't, do you violate privacy, right? It's what's actually needed because it works. It's It's what the public health authorities think is actually going to be needed to protect people or to protect the broader community? And are you drawing lines around it so that the use is ethically, morally, you know, legally justified and um, not taking the easy way of just, you know, let me just share that or announce that or not think hard about how to do it in a, in a careful way. That That's how, and then by the way, if it is something that you know, I'm doing now because of the risk, it has to go away when the balance is over, when the crisis is over, right? It's got to be minimal so that it doesn't hang around uh, to cause uh, embarrassment or harm um, or, or just be sitting around in the hands of the wrong parties after what is necessary. It's a, such an interesting way to look at it and an explanation. I think we'll never forget either. And I suspect it's one that that concept of rights and context that applies to liberty at the moment as well and do you imagine our our worldview on these things and on privacy has changed about how we feel about government control or even privacy in general like the government's interest in our house you know it always ebbs and flows and some of it is normal and natural you know um we didn't share i share widely on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, right? And, and I'm sharing more things than I did 20 years ago, right? Where maybe I posted something to a website carefully and thoughtfully. Mm. And so, <laughs> you know, over time, as different modes of communications are available, we have come up with ways to, you know, connect and, and sort of live a more nuanced uh, and remote connection. Um, and what role the government plays is always sort of the thousand pound sort of gorilla, right? The government is the only player that can lock me up, uh, that can, uh, you know, take away my rights, can, um, you know, deny me benefits. Um, and so whenever the government is involved in collecting data, uh, and there are certainly issues with big companies who can like wipe me on wipe, wipe me off the face of social media, right? I mean, so I don't want to take them off the hook, right? But they they can't put me in jail yet. Um, so whenever it's government, we have a a higher bar for whether or not 
we want the government having that data. In the US, we have you know, what's known as the Privacy Act. We don't want secret databases about us. If I'm a student, um, we don't want the schools to have profiles that say, you know, troublemaker um, or uh, information that might be uh, used one day against me with an employer. I have rights to see it, to delete it. Um, when it comes to security, right, we have really uh, long histories of how we want government acting or not acting because they can arrest me, they can deport me, they can spy on my communications. So um, we have lessons, I think, from 9-11 from that we should be paying close attention to. Um, where we had a crisis, um, we at first wanted to know, why didn't the gov government know this? If, you know, if there was different clues, if certain individuals were signing up for training to fly planes and, and they were also on certain lists, and, you know, why didn't we put the clues together so as to do something about this? And so we spent years putting together all our systems and creating expanded surveillance authorities so that the government had greater powers. And a lot of it wasn't very transparent. And we were surprised when the Snowden revelations came out of how vastly broader the government's collection was than what we thought. And that their interpretations of the law, some of which were kept secret, were shockingly broad, um, such that NSA was collecting things in bulk, you know, in, in a, at a global scale that was truly unexpected, right? And so we, we now have a lot of pushback and debate and, and some, you know, lack of trust uh, around, uh, well, wait a second, um, you know, did we do this right? Did we go too far? So what's the lesson for today, right? The lesson is um, clearly public health authorities are going to be doing contact tracing where they, uh, you know, t today uh, the diseases so widespread in society that you know it's hard to do any contact tracing. But as we hopefully move to emerge, as we see the number of infections coming down, and we are going to worry about new spikes as people go back to schools or back to workplaces, and every time it does an individual is infected, we are going to need to be say, whoa, wait a second, let's make sure it's only you and you go to quarantine and anyone you were in touch, you, you stay home for another you know, two weeks as well so that we can really control the renewed spread. And that's going to involve you know, public health authorities doing a lot of testing, sharing information. And I think we want to make sure that that data is only available to the public health authorities, right? I mean, for those of us who are concerned about the fact that we're still you know, trying to deport people, you know, right now, um, you know, who would want, um, uh, you know, undocumented uh, uh, residents uh, having to avoid uh, being tested or, or going to the hospital um, and, and, you know, continuing mm -hmm. to spread because showing up could mean that you get deported, right? So knowing that public health authorities keep uh, are, are only there to give us healthcare or to help us combat the spread is really critical. It, it'll be a little trickier, frankly, when it comes to employers. Um, we, we want employers taking safety measures when they uh, open their offices. Um, how they properly manage the fact that they will learn that an employee 
uh, is sick um, and how they handle who and how to notify, um, how to properly, um, so we're seeing a lot of people interested in, in those teller thermometers, these remote thermal scanners. Um, uh, a very significant number of people who are sick um, have a fever, have a fever very early. Um, but there are some people who have elevated temperature because they're pregnant um, or because they're stressed or they're flushed or they rode a bike tour or, you know, whatever the case is. So um, implementing those sorts of technologies with nuance um, is, I think, really going to be um, a, a challenge and, and really important. It's funny, human behavior almost puts better privacy management and the self-interest of the data collectors in that case when it comes to health tracking that, um, for example, if you're protecting the privacy of um, of uh, people who are, are staying in the country country without um, without visa, it, it sort of it makes it more likely that for them to come forward if they, if they know and have confidence that, that that data is protected. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the challenge is law enforcement doesn't always um, like the notion that um, one agency of the government can have data for purpose A mm. um, and that they can't have data to it for purpose B. I mean, that's what happens often. And so having appropriate legal protections. Um, I suspect we'll see some new um, legislation um, I know that the Senate Commerce Committee is looking at um, legislation that says data that's collected for COVID purposes will only be used for those limited purposes and be deleted and, and so forth afterwards. Um, um, I, I've got a, a bill in my box waiting for me to, to, to review that is um, being, being circulated. Um, in the uh, UK, a uh, wonderful professor named Lillian Edwards um, has proposed and I think already even testified about a bill that uh, she drafted that um, uh, legislators have, have picked up that, that similarly tries to lay down uh, tight protections um, that hopefully will make people feel comfortable. Um, look, we, we don't get out of this if we can't trust that the entities mm. that we share data with are using it in a very careful, limited way. Let's take these mobile apps. Um, Apple and, and Google have you know, announced that they are going to, say, enhance um, your phone, um, which today uses Bluetooth to connect to your you know, earbuds. And maybe if I'm a museum, I might have um, beacons at various points, and um, I might be counting the number of devices or, or even might have an app that you know situates the user in front of a particular work of art that can trigger um, the, the the right proximity to describe you know to have the app describe what the user is, is seeing or, or for um, for navigating um, uh, and the reality is the functionality of that Bluetooth is is fairly limited your phone has to be on and your screen has got to be up your app needs to be operating. And that Bluetooth scanning doesn't happen continuously. And that's fine for these purposes. Um, it's not fine if I need to be constantly scanning and constantly seeing every device. Um, and so uh, Apple and Google, in a unique um, cooperation, are both um, opening up APIs that only approved health department apps will be able to use that will have more powerful access than your typical 
um, app that, that uses Bluetooth. Um, it will work even if your phone is in your pocket and the screen is off. Uh, it uses a low power type uh, process so that it won't run down your battery even though it's going to be scanning. Um, and it creates sort of a double blinded um, set of um, IDs so that any other phone that interacts gets this sort of temporary um, ID that's been created. Um, and then if you are sick and a um, doctor diagnoses you, the health authority um, can give you a code for you to then activate so that anyone else who is in your proximity is able to pull down from a sort of a server uh, the list of all of the phones that were in their proximity. And you can then be warned that, oh, you were in proximity to somebody who was you know, diagnosed, maybe you should stay home or, or maybe you should um, avoid, um, you know, people that are high risk or, or whatever the health authority comes up with. And there's been a lot of debate about um, how much or how little or what's the right privacy around those apps. And right now, Apple and Google have taken a very sort of conservative, um, high privacy point of view that this can only be for proximity. It can have location. Now, location might be interesting, right? If I'm a public health authority, I want to know where did this happen, right? Maybe it happened in a, in a museum. Maybe I want to tell the director of the museum, um, hey, anybody who is at uh, the um, uh, reception uh, between three and five, um, well, it, it, this doesn't tell you that. This just lets other people who have downloaded the app learn they were in proximity with, with someone. Um, it doesn't allow uh, a phone number. Uh, it doesn't allow other data to be corrected. And and the argument of the companies is, we want to do something that's useful here. But if people aren't going to trust it, if people are going to worry, wait, is Apple, is Google, is some app developer, is some advertiser, who's going to get information about me? Uh, maybe I don't want to disclose my illness to everybody, people I don't know. Um, uh, uh, so they're trying to make this as minimal as possible um, as a supplement to the kind of contact tracing that we're going to be needing to do at very large scale in, in order to really kind of move forward. So COVID-19 has really put many of these digital trends on hyperspeed. And I can imagine that's true here for we're seeing years of privacy movement in the space of a couple of months. But looking back, you mentioned lessons from previous events in our history like 9-11, but for this crisis, for right now, on the global stage, it looks like draconian measures and governments with higher levels of surveillance have had good public health outcomes during the pandemic, uh, perhaps that we can learn from or aspire to. Does, does that cost of privacy of its civilians, is it justified? Um, I think two groups of company countries have done well. One has been those where, yeah, the government could say, stay home or we arrest you, um, give us your phone, we're tracking everything about you, give us um, give us your credit card, you know, not give us, they, they're getting it directly from, um, uh, from, from uh, you know, the companies because they legally um, can, can control it or access it. Um, but a couple of other countries that are um, democratic, um, South Korea, um, uh, Hong Kong, um, have had an enormous amount of citizen-driven collaboration and trust with authorities um, in a way that has taken them to the same direction. People have 
shared, people have trusted, uh, and people have been comfortable that the data will only be used for the limited um, purposes. I fear that we are in the US gonna be dealing with the worst of all the worlds. Um, we don't have the central control in the places we need it. And I don't mean so much of the control, it's the central communication. One of the public health experts um, I thought was really uh, helpful when he talked about, you know, we've got this need to, to provide healthcare and respond medically, but a lot of public health is about communicating, right? Telling you what to do, stay at home, don't drink bleach, stay this far away, clean like this, open these kind of places, right? Don't do this until these metrics, you know, go down. Um, a huge amount is clear communication. So we're all on the same page because we're in this together. This is not just about, right, do I get sick and do I get good healthcare and is there a cure, right? It's, it's about how do you prevent spread or how do you, you know, at least change the curve and, and deal with population-wide issues, right? That means cooperation. And either you cooperate because the government mandates it which that's just not us. That's not going to happen in Western societies. Um, or you cooperate because the government lays out clear information, health experts, not politicians who can be criticized by their opponents and this and that, right? But career civil servants who, who are experts because they've been through versions of this before in other parts of the world during the other uh, earlier crises, you know, say to you and explain to you, look, here's why. Here's why you can't go visit your grandmother. Here's why we wear masks. Here's, and, and we trust so that the vast majority of us move forward. Uh, and that means sometimes sharing information. I'm sick, I gotta go home. I may have seen these people. They need to know, they need to take action, right? And so the question for us is, do we trust each other, government, public health, uh, the, the systems that move information. I fear that the problem we have is that we have a trust gap and we have a communications mess. When you open up, you know, TV and you hear open up, close, don't open, do this, do that, go, go take this medicine, that medicine, right? Whoa, whoa. You, you can't get society operating in one collective uh, direction. Um, and, and mandating it is one path, but that's just not you know, free societies do. What free societies do is they clearly speak logically to the majority of us and they provide um, a safety net, right? If I'm gonna get sent home uh, and that means I'm gonna starve, uh, then I'm not in a big rush to tell you that I'm feeling a little sick today. I, I don't think it's anything, maybe it's nothing. Uh, yeah, my cousin, I was, you know, in the same, um, you know, event as, as him and he's sick, but I didn't really come near him and I'm not feeling well, but I, I'm okay. Well, I'm not gonna tell you if I'm gonna, I mean, I will, right? But the incentive for too many, if it means, okay, sorry, you get furloughed and you now lose, you know, your your ability to feed your family, um, then I'm gonna make a decision. Like, I don't, I don't feel, I feel fine. So I'm probably okay, right? Um, as opposed to, you know what? Don't take a chance, I'm probably okay. But if I'm not, I've just infected a lot of people, I'm going to go home. I'm not happy going home, but I'm not going to like starve because I go home, right? So we need that safety net. And, and I know I'm talking about things that are not privacy and data, but the reality is 
most of the challenging issues around privacy and data are not the more mundane ones about did I spam you with too many emails or did I share, you know, um, some private um, uh, information. Most of the important issues about privacy and data protection are about power, about equity, about these other rights and freedoms, right? Your ability to lose your freedom and 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 be deported, right? That's a privacy issue. Your your um, uh, sharing information that means you're going to maybe denied be denied healthcare or or be sent home from work, right? That's what really matters to people. And increasingly, data, who has data, and what we do with the data, and how it affects different classes of people, race, religion, uh, economic. Um, different kinds of workers, professional, blue collar, white collar, right? Uh, essential services. How what we do with data affects those people differently. How it affects our civil rights. That's why privacy is so important, and not just sort of a legal or a kind of marketing hygiene sort of thing. Mm. I love this theme of the importance of trust that's coming through because it is something that the cultural sector prides itself in that its institutions are trusted by the general public and we do hope that it will be something that benefits the sector in its recovery too so in in terms of those visitor attractions in public spaces in order to support physical distancing and contact tracing Many of them are thinking about implementing advanced pass reservation systems and virtual queues in places that haven't had those kind of technologies before. What sorts of things should they be keeping in mind to make sure that we don't forget about privacy in the rush of this digital transformation? Yeah, so look, I think there's a whole host of issues that hopefully don't involve privacy too much that are maybe the biggest things, right? Um, uh, you know, spacing out, the number of people in space and all that sort of, you know, social distancing type um, uh, strategy, even if it means I have to register when I didn't need to register, uh, can I do it in a way that, you know, um, lets me do it um, anonymously or, or um, can I explain, you know, the purposes um, and, and only use it for that particular use. But, but most of those steps I think can be done. The, the harder ones I think are going to be things like, um, heat scanners for temperature uh, at entryways um, or um, helping identify high-risk employees, right? And saying, uh, you can come back to work if you're in this category, but if you're in a higher-risk category, um, you ought to wait until this particular point, right? That's not information that an employer necessarily had. And if they did, they understood that it was part of a, you know, ADA um, regulated set of activities. So there is really helpful information at the EEOC and at the ADA. And those are the places, frankly, that you may want to look to. Those are typically not kind of privacy law places. We don't have a comprehensive privacy law in the US. Um, we do have, um, you know, HIPAA, um, which is a privacy law that only comes into effect when um, healthcare data is collected in the course of, you know, providing and billing for healthcare. So an employer simply saying, you know, fill out a survey or, or tell me if you're sick is not covered by HIPAA in the same way that if you learned about this because you were the employer um, providing health insurance and learning about it, you know, via healthcare. Now, that doesn't mean 
it doesn't get captured in other places. So it gets captured in ADA, we treat people who are sick, we're often treating people who have, you know, at least a temporary disability, and there are guidelines for how you can um, use that kind of information. So it's, it's employee labor relations law and um, accommodating employees with disabilities, and, and those laws are relevant. So um, they, both those agencies, the EEOC, and, uh, have put out um, very specific guidance saying, you know, here's, here's parameters. So I urge people to take a look at that. I won't go into it right now. Um, the FDA, uh, which regulates things like um, thermo scanners and, and sort of health devices, has also put out uh, some guidance, um, you know, and, and I know that's being considered by a lot of public venues. Um, so I just caution folks on that, you know, being aware that there are people who are going to, you know, trigger that and um, are just naturally um, operating at a little higher temperature. Um, and again, some of them, it might be because of a, a very personal reason that they don't need to share with you that perhaps they're pregnant. Um, uh, so having sort of fail safes and backups. And, and I think, you know, a good institution understands that in general, right? Like there's always rules and there's always someone who's somehow going to like fall out of the rule and, and you're going to need to be like, yeah, I understand, but we should let you in or we should, you know, accommodate uh, this. And so I think having that sort of common sense that doesn't, um, uh, that, that, that recognizes that there does need to be accommodation flexibility to the general rule. Um, one thing that I'm concerned about, which is being um, seriously considered and debated, uh, are immunity passports, right? And that's you know, taking mm. a test and learning that you have antigens, that you know you have antibodies, uh, depending on the test, and um, certificates that you can have maybe on your phone that then let you go to work or let you into a space because you have a immunity passport. Um, We've been critical of that because a the science isn't there yet. The best tests are 90 or 95 percent accurate, and that sounds pretty good. But that means that you know you're sending home five percent people who should be able to come to work, uh, telling them they can't come in or come to work or come to your space. Um, and then you're There's also going to be people that will go out there and try and get sick, right? Uh, it a it, it it right it incentivizes like oh maybe I can just you know hey most people don't really get badly sick, right? I mean, most people don't go to the hospital, right? But enough do that it's a very bad thing, you know, to do. But you could see someone saying, oh, I don't care. I got to make money. Like, you know, go go give me the measles, right? Um, uh, and, and also um, the tests, in addition to, you know, over-detecting or under-detecting, right? So the, the WHO currently doesn't believe that immunity passports are good idea but we hear them being considered by um by organizations and um you know so, so something to monitor but i think the consensus right now is that um these are more likely to be harmful um and, and motivate people to to cheat or get one you know if it, if it means getting in or coming back um uh, based on having an antigen not being sick right i get that if i'm sick i shouldn't go to a place and if you want to make sure that i'm not actively having symptoms right like that's challenging. That's that's a privacy issue, but I have some obligation to try to make sure that somebody who's actively infectious is not coming into my workspace, not coming into um, you know a public space. And what kinds of things can I do? A, a survey, a temperature check, um, uh, some sort of assessment, right? I do have some 
uh, offer testing, right? Kind of offer testing, um, some uh, degree of cooperation and obligation that I may be able to do in a privacy sensitive way. Um, but immunity passports, I, I certainly have concerns about today, given the, um, the state of the technology. Do you foresee outside of China that we, and the, elsewhere in the world, that we might end up with some sort of house cards or house app like China have done with their green, orange, red system or some form of other sort of biometric checking? Yeah, I hope not. Um, I hope not. That just seems a lot more um, restrictive and challenging. I think our hope obviously is that by people staying in and, you know, um, um, proper social distancing measures that we can reduce the rate of spread such that it becomes, you know, less than one or not, as I understand the scientists call it. Um, and as a result, the spread in society ends up becoming very small and we end up with herd immunity, you know, and then hopefully, um, you know, have vaccinations in time. Um, but that's going to take a lot of cooperation and people, you know, strictly social distancing and strictly taking themselves out of circulation when they're sick or when they've been exposed. I mean, I think those methods, you know, are what the public health community thinks is useful. So we imagine as part of these operational challenges that we might challenge guests as they come on site too with questions or even declarations about their health that they don't have any symptoms, they haven't returned from travel or um, even these temperature checks that you've been talking about. How do you think that's going to go down with the public in terms of their expectations of privacy? I think people aren't going to feel comfortable returning unless they go to places where they know steps have been taken. And look, the different parts of the country are different, right? I mean, we see people rushing to the beaches and all that sort of thing. But I think um, most of us are going to be very nervous about getting on a plane, going to a crowded space, going to a closed environment, um, not for quite a long time. And I think we'll feel more comfortable if we are going to places where we're told we've taken the right steps. I mean, when you go to a supermarket today um, and they've got a system to space people and they're having you know hours for uh, older people in uh, the evening or during a certain time um, or enabling um, curbside uh, pickup or contactless pickup, um, I, I think most of us aren't annoyed about that. They're like, thank you for creating an environment where I can safely do my shopping instead of feeling like I'm you know, going to risk my life because I'm going into narrow aisles. So I think that for most, this is going to be a norm for a transition period. And as long as I communicate why, right, and it's not a matter of like being unreasonable, um, I think there's going to be a lot of peer pressure. Um, you know, we're going to be looking at each other in, in a lot of cities and saying, why aren't you wearing a mask? Like, that's how you protect me from the fact that you might be sick and, and might not know it. And if you're going to be walking near me without one, you're doing something inappropriate. You're coughing. That's coughing in my face. Right. So I think that um, the norm for a period of time is going to embrace this, but you need to communicate, right? I mean, if it doesn't make sense to me and it doesn't seem reasonable, um, you know, then then I don't appreciate it. I think most of us will insist on this and want to know in advance that social distance measures are taking. You know, I'm thinking about a uh, 
conference that we put on um, and we moved it to November and I don't know if it'll even happen, but um, I, I was thinking about how we would communicate, uh, hey, it's safe to come. Here's how we're going to limit the number of people and here's how we're going to you know, do all these things to ensure that your safety and our employee safety comes first. Now, I'm sure there'll be some unreasonable people who don't get it. There always are, right? Um, uh, but I think the norm is going to be um, very much in sync with um, we're all in this together, so we need to uh, collaborate. Um, it's helpful if there's consensus, right? If you're the only organization that's doing something really different than everybody else and people are like, wow, well, what about that, right? Look, maybe you are, but you want to explain it, right? So people aren't like, I didn't have to do that there. Why do I have to do this here? So I think communicating broadly, you know, it, it is as much a disease um, that spreads because of not being able to communicate and cooperate in how we behave, right? Part of the disease is, is it attacks us and kills us. The other part is move how how this moves through society, and we only we either change that by medically killing it or by interfering with how it moves through society, which means us reorganizing how we like no one's going to be insulted if they don't shake your hand right there was a weird period where this was sort of just starting i was at a big conference rsa one of the biggest security conferences and this was already like two something months ago and so you know there, there were cases but like we people were still going to big conferences and and flying and you know those guidances haven't you know it was two two and a half weeks away from that uh, kicking in and some of us were shaking hands and others were not. And, you know, I saw some old friends, we hugged, we kissed, and I'm like, okay, maybe we shouldn't, right? But it was it was awkward not to. And then some people weren't and there was Purell everywhere. And now, right, you try to shake someone's hand, you know, they're going to call the police. That's crazy, right? Like you don't do that right now. Um, so I think the, the useful uh, 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 thing here is for good communication, uh, it's hard for one organization to communicate, all right? Collective communication. And at the end of the day, hearing it from the governor, hearing it from uh, central public health authorities um, is going to be critical. I think it's so important your point around the industry working together and to sort of establish those new norms for visitors of their expectations of attractions. And, and speaking of that, interestingly, places like museums and galleries and libraries, historically, there's been this view in the industry that you should be able to visit these places anonymously and just waltz in without identifying yourself, maybe pay cash if you make a transaction. And if we're talking about implementing contact tracing and contactless payments as well, this isn't really going to be possible any, anymore. Do you think that presents a dilemma for privacy? Oh, look, I think there may be some ways to accommodate um, and, and continue to maintain um, some of those protections. Um, in places where it's not possible, um, again, one can still promise, I'm going to only keep this for two weeks, right? I don't need it more than two weeks because I don't need to do any contact tracing here. Um, or um, who needs to know it, right? I think there are layers to this. And as long as, um, and, and if I don't need to, because I can achieve it um, by working around it in some way that accomplishes the same goal, right? Proximity, but not location. Um, I ought to do that first. 
Um, and if I don't have an option, can I put the other protections around it so that I'm saying it's gone in two weeks or um, it, it's only going to be used for this purpose or it's going to be scrambled and only accessible to this one um, employee or this one independent external um, you know, ent uh, auditor or entity only to be used if there is this emergency need. So those are all the reasonable structures. It's not all or nothing. All or nothing is where we have the privacy problem. When we're debating over the nuances of how to balance the different options and the costs and what's feasible, that's sort of where the real good conversation is um, and where you know different decisions can be so made. The privacy principle of really minimizing our use of data, that's a, a great way to look at that. How, how many of these changes about how we interact in public uh, with our data in these circumstances, do we think are temporary versus those that might persist post-pandemic? Um, I hope none of them persist. Um, I don't know what we're going to see with recurrences or, or the like. Um, I do hope that there are some changes that are going to be for the good where data that we want moving that today doesn't easily move, um, health data research, things that we can do better to reliably get data, that we do put some measures in place that support that. Um, but I think the exceptional measures that we're talking about here um, ought to go away to be reactivated if we have another crisis, but but not to be in place um, uh, otherwise. Uh, so one last question for you, Jules. COVID-19 is such a world-changing event. Is it going to change the timeline or even the trajectory for the privacy agenda? I hope that by putting privacy up front in a way that many people who maybe typically don't think about it are now thinking about it, um, we'll go back to some of our life with a little more thought and care um, as we download an app, as we make decisions. Um, oh, wait a second, I was worried about that. Don't I still have to worry about my location or these other issues? So. Um, I hope the appreciation of how sharing and connecting and con being on Zoom and talking to people and you know data exchanges with other humans for individual or societal benefit can be valuable and rewarding, right? I want a relationship with my favorite cultural institution. I want them knowing me in many cases well, sending me invitations to the right events, um, treating me like a VIP sometimes maybe, or you know, knowing that I've signed up for you know photography type stuff. Um, managing those um, data sets, it can sometimes feel very trivial and legalistic to some, you know, institutions. That this is a marketing list, um, and of course these are humans behind it. So I hope that um, some of the mundane, um, this is data as opposed to this is people and humans that, that just can get lost in the day-to-day -day, um, uh, is enhanced by what we've gone through and that we come back to daily life with a new respect for both the value of data because of how it can be life-saving or how it can be linking us up in intimate ways, but also the respect for the fact that it can be used in ways that really do take away my autonomy and, and can be risky. So I'm, I'm hoping there's some good that comes out of this. And where can people go to go to get more information about your work? At fpf.org, Future of Privacy Forum, fpf.org. You can find lots of information about the work we do on many of these issues and other intersections of tech and data. Thank you so much, Jules, for sharing your perspectives with us and, and the industry. Great to be with you. Thank you. 
And for more webinars, podcasts and articles on the crisis, see covid.dexabit.com. See you next time.